Good evening again. Tonight we'll be looking at one of Jesus' eschatological teachings, uh, this particular discourse found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. If you'd like to turn there and follow along with me. And tonight I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Luke 17, verses 20 through 37. Hear now the word of God. Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in his house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? So he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help tonight. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear, read, mark, learn, and take them to heart, that by the patience and comfort of your Holy Spirit, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, so there was a greenhouse, and inside the greenhouse, there was a white house, and inside the white house, there was a red house, and inside the red house were a bunch of babies. What am I talking about? <laughs> This is a riddle. Does anybody have the answer? It's a watermelon. It's a watermelon. Yeah. So the babies are the seeds, then you have the red flesh, the white, and then the green on the outside. So riddles are fun. For those of us who like puzzles, they're, they're linguistic puzzles, they're word puzzles. They require us to think differently than we normally would about words and the meaning of words. And there are certain parts of the Bible that when we read them, they seem like riddles to us. 
Some of these passages are actual riddles, like Samson's famous riddle about the eater and the strong. But most of the time, the passages that seem like riddles to us were actually clear to those in the original audience. And we have one such statement in our passage tonight. You probably noticed it there at the end. And it's particularly important that we understand that statement because it's the climax of our passage. But unfortunately, for those of you who like to read the last page of the book first, we'll have to wait until the end of the passage to discuss it. For now, I'd simply draw your attention to the big idea of our text tonight, which is this. Because we are followers of Jesus, we can take comfort that we will be spared from destruction when he returns. So our text tonight divides itself into three sections, and that's how we'll proceed through it. First, we'll talk about God's kingdom now and later in verses 20 through 25. Second, the return of the king in verses 26 through 32. And third, the king's people in verses 33 through 37. And actually, since we're dealing with a narrative here, we're sort of jumping into the story at a certain point. It's best for us to take one step back and look at the episode that took place right before our passage starts. So what happened right before the Pharisees came up to Jesus with their question? Well, in Luke 17, 11 through 19, we read the story of the healing of 10 lepers. And as with all of Jesus's healing miracles, this healing of the 10 lepers is a foretaste of the freedom from all sickness, disease, and death that will be experienced in the new creation. It's about the inbreaking power of the kingdom of God. The Pharisees should have understood from these healings that Jesus was the promised Messiah, but, as is typical, they don't understand. And the question they ask, when will the kingdom of God come, reveals that they didn't understand what they had just seen. So the Pharisees, contrary to what actually was the case, probably expected to see some sorts of signs in the stars or meteorological evidence that God's kingdom would be coming soon. So they were waiting for these heavenly signs, but they were blind to the signs that were taking place on earth right in front of them, namely the sign of Jesus's person, words, and works. So, Jesus reprimands them for not recognizing what was right under their noses. And the way Luke tells the story makes it seem like they had seen the healing of these lepers. But again, they missed the point. The point being that Jesus' kingdom was already there among them because the king was there among them. This is the point Jesus makes in verse 21. Now, in the New King James, which I read earlier, Uh, It preserves one of the long-standing translation options for this verse. It says the kingdom of God is within you. But a better alternative would be to translate that preposition at the end, among you, or in your midst. And I think that fits the context a lot better. So in other words, Jesus is affirming the presence of the kingdom of God among the Pharisees. How? As I said, through the presence of the king himself. Jesus, along with his powerful word and his miraculous works, has made the kingdom of God a nearby reality. He's brought fulfillment, in a way, to Zephaniah's words in Zephaniah 3.15. The king of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst. So then, 
The kingdom of God, at least for now, exists in a largely invisible manner. It exists in the hearts of the king's people. There are signs when Jesus was on the earth that the Pharisees should have seen, but in answering the Pharisees' question, Jesus turns their attention away from the future of the kingdom of God, which they were looking up to the stars to try to find, to the present appearance of the kingdom of God. They don't need to wait for signs in the stars. Instead, they need to recognize that Jesus himself has already inaugurated the kingdom among them. So, where the first two verses of our passage focus on the present aspect of the kingdom of God, the rest of our passage, Jesus turns to the future of God's kingdom. And he uses this confrontation with the Pharisees to teach his disciples. So, moving on to verses 22 and 23... Jesus tells his disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. And they'll say to you, Look here or look there. Don't go after them or follow them. So in these two verses, we see three things. We see the disciples' desire, the disciples' disappointment, and also their temptation. So first, Jesus says, They'll desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. Simply put, they'll, they'll miss him. After Jesus ascends, the disciples' memories of the time they spent with their teacher and their savior and their friend will cause them to have a powerful longing for reunion with him. They'll want to be with him again. They'll want to be in his presence. But they'll be disappointed. Jesus tells them, you will not see it. He's warning them that their common experience after he leaves will be one of yearning. And that's the common Christian experience, isn't it? For those who were actually with Jesus during his earthly ministry, they could long for days past when he was with them. But for the rest of us who've never seen Jesus, we long for the future. We long for the day of the Son of Man when he'll come back and we'll get to see him face to face. This is a disappointed desire, and it will be so strong, Jesus says, that he warns his disciples in verse 23 not to pay attention to any rumors about his return. People will tell them, look here, look there. They'll claim to know when and where Jesus is coming back. But Jesus says not to buy into these rumors. Why? Well, elsewhere he says, because no one knows the day. But here he says in verse 24, because when he comes back, it'll be unmistakable. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. Nobody's going to miss it when Jesus comes back. So how many have been camping? I know we have some campers in the church. Any kids who've been camping? So you're out camping. You check the weather. It's supposed to be good weather, but you start to feel like maybe there's a storm coming. You might feel the air change. Maybe the wind shifts direction, the gray clouds start piling up on the horizon. So you're thinking there might be a storm coming. But then a huge lightning bolt flashes in the sky and lights up everything. Even if you're in your tent, you can see it. That's when you know without a doubt that the storm is upon you. Lightning is pretty hard to miss, isn't it? Well, it's going to be the same, Jesus says, when he comes back. To establish his father's kingdom once and for all. No one's going to miss it. So we shouldn't pay attention to any rumors that tell us Jesus has come back or when he will come back or where he will come back. That's not possible and it's not necessary. 
everyone will know when Jesus comes back. But first, before any of that can happen, Jesus says in verse 25, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This is the fifth time in Luke's gospel that Jesus predicts his death. And his point here is the same as his point in all of the rest of those passages. The order of the kingdom is first suffering and then glory. Suffering and then glory. So why is Jesus' suffering and rejection necessary? There are several reasons we could come up with, but the reason that's most relevant to the context of this passage is that there must be a saved people to inhabit the kingdom of God. Throughout this passage, we're talking about the kingdom of God, and there can be no sin in the kingdom of God. There needs to be a holy people to dwell with the holy king. And in order for any sinner to be saved, in order for anyone to be made holy, Jesus had to die. So Jesus reminds us in this verse that he loves his people and he's willing to suffer for them. But this verse is also a helpful reminder to us that just as Christ suffered before he was glorified, we also should expect to suffer on our path to glory. So what have we seen so far in this first section? We've seen first that for now the kingdom of God is invisible. But when Jesus comes back, he'll come back visibly and unmistakably. And third, we've seen that before any of this could happen, Jesus had to suffer and die. Well, the rest of the passage focuses on the events surrounding that second point, that Jesus will return. And what's going to happen when he returns? What will it be like? In the next several verses, Jesus uses two Old Testament stories to show his disciples what things will be like when he comes back. This is what he says, starting in verse 26. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So Jesus is comparing his return to these stories of Noah and Lot. And he's saying that when he comes back, he is going to bring judgment And the judgment that he brings will be similar to the judgment we read about in the stories of Noah and Lot. So first, when judgment comes, life will be carrying on as normal. Jesus sets the scene of these great Old Testament judgments, not by highlighting the sin of the people, as as the Genesis accounts do, but by highlighting their everyday activities. Eating, drinking, marrying, buying, selling, planting, building. These normal day-to-day things are going on. And then, boom, judgment comes and separates humanity, which is the second point we see. There are two possible results of judgment, destruction and salvation. So, in both Noah and Lot's story, people were destroyed. In Noah's case, it was humanity that was destroyed by the floodwaters. And in Lot's case, it was the people of Sodom who were destroyed by the fire and brimstone God sent from heaven. But the second possible result, the other side of the judgment coin, is salvation. Noah and his family were kept safe in the ark. Lot and his daughters were kept at a safe distance from the destruction of Sodom in Zoar. 
So God's judgment always has these twin results, destruction and salvation. And Jesus is saying that things will be no different when he comes back and brings his judgment. Some will be saved, others will be destroyed. So the question naturally arises, even though it's not explicitly asked in this passage, who? Who is going to be destroyed? Who is going to be saved? And these are the questions we see answered in the final seven verses of our passage. Verses 33 through 31, Jesus says this, In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in his house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. So who's going to be destroyed? The one who seeks to save his life. Here Jesus teaches that those who wish to be spared destruction must leave behind their previous lives. And he reminds his followers of Lot's wife the premier example of someone who did not follow that advice. We know her story. She turned back to the life she used to live, to her old home. Her desire to maintain her old life had disastrous results. So, like Lot's wife, the person who clings to their old life in the old world will forfeit new life in the kingdom of God. The examples here Jesus gives about someone going into his house to get his goods, someone turning back to his field, This is consistent with a pattern we see in Luke's gospel of a focus on wealth and material possessions. So, it's true. Christians must be ready to part with their money and their stuff if necessary. We should hold those things with a very loose grip. But this concept certainly applies to more than money. In verse 33, Jesus is saying that as his followers, as the ones who follow the king of God's kingdom who are citizens of the new creation. Our lives should be built on the values of the kingdom of God, not on the kingdom of this old world. It's a question of priorities. Jesus wants his disciples to be prepared for the cost of following a suffering Savior. And he's clear about this. The cost of following a suffering Savior is to be willing to give up everything. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that in every case we'll have to give up everything. Again, it's simply a matter of having rightly ordered priorities. Now, it's an important reminder uh, at this point we should remember that we're not talking about what it takes to be saved. This isn't the cost of saving a Christian's soul. The soul of every Christian was bought with the blood of Christ alone. What Jesus is talking about in verse 33 is what it costs to live that blood-bought life. What we have to be prepared to pay in earthly terms. And as a Christian, the life you lead is going to be costly in terms of this world. You must be prepared to give up your material possessions, as these two examples highlight. But also, your self-righteousness, your sins, your comforts, your status... And in some cases, even your life. It's a great cost to follow Christ. But along with this great cost, there's a greater gain. Willingness to abandon the things of this old world results in obtaining every blessing of the new world. 
total and eternal salvation, the approbation of God, the friendship of Jesus Christ, unspeakable love, unshakable hope, everlasting glory. The list could go on and on. So what is Jesus' answer to the question of who? Who will be destroyed? Who will be saved? In these verses, Jesus answers that those who will be spared when he comes back in judgment are those who have decided to follow him despite the high cost of that path. Noah and Lot are two examples we've seen already in our passage, but we get the best example of this kind of willingness in Christ himself. Whenever he was faced with a choice between partaking in the things of the world, sinful or otherwise, he always obeyed God, even to the point of forsaking every earthly comfort on the cross. Jesus obeyed. That's what it means to be willing to forsake the things of this world. And that attitude of willingness is a necessary part of being citizens of God's kingdom. It's only those who are willing to suffer like Christ suffered who will gain new creation life. Well, after making that principle clear, Jesus returns to reiterate the two possible outcomes of judgment. In verses 34 through 36, he says, I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Again, we see this duality. There are only two possible results of judgment, being saved or being destroyed, being taken or being left. And the way Jesus talks about those two verbs here, being taken and being left, it's clear that being left means being left to destruction. And being taken means being taken away to safety, being spared from destruction. If we think about Noah's story... We could sort of think of it either way. We could imagine that the wicked were taken in the flood waters and Noah and his family were kept safe in the ark. This is actually the way Jesus talks about it in a different teaching, in Matthew. But in this passage, the idea is that Noah was taken safely in the ark while those who were left on the earth were destroyed. And this is confirmed when we consider Lot's story. Lot was taken away from Sodom. And brought to safety, while those who were left in Sodom were abandoned to fiery doom. Jesus is reiterating his point from verse 33. Those who do not abandon their lives for Christ's sake will be themselves abandoned to destruction. And on the other hand, those who are willing to leave behind their former lives, to follow Jesus on the path of suffering, will be taken to meet him in his glory. At this point in the story, a question is asked by the disciples, who I imagine were probably holding in this question for a while. They were curious about many things, I'm sure, as they were listening to Jesus' teaching. But this most recent thing Jesus has said has sparked a question that no doubt left them craving both comfort and their curiosity to be answered. Verse 37 says this, They answered and said to him, Where, Lord? So he said to them, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. This is why I opened uh, tonight with a riddle, because this is the statement that sort of sounds like a riddle to us. What What is the body? What are these eagles? 
But to the disciples, it was clear, and it was a comfort to them. But before we understand Jesus' answer, we need to understand the disciples' question. Because you'll remember, our passage started with a different question, the Pharisees' question. So are the disciples expressing, like the Pharisees, their misunderstanding, their ignorance by asking a bad question? Or is this an appropriate question? Second, are the disciples asking where the Son of Man will come back? Uh, showing that they're ignorant about what Jesus said in verse 24 when he said it will be unmistakable? Or are they asking about the location of something else? Well, if we consider the flow of this passage, the answer seems to be that the disciples are asking an appropriate question, not a bad question, and they're asking about the location of those who will be taken. Jesus has just said that some will be left and some will be taken, and they're curious, where will those who are taken be taken? Now let's think about this carefully for a moment. They've just been reminded of the stories of Noah and of Lot. In both of those stories, the wicked were left where they were, and they were destroyed. Regarding the final judgment, the disciples could fill in the blanks. On the day the Son of Man, the wicked will be left, wherever they are, to be destroyed, whether in bed, at a mill, in a field, or anywhere else. But Jesus did not mention the location of those who were taken. Noah and his family were taken away in the ark. Lot and his family were taken to Zoar. But the question remained in the disciples' minds, where will those who are saved from Christ's judgment, where will they be taken? An ark, a neighboring town? No. Jesus says they'll be taken to himself. This is the meaning of his answer. Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered. Again, despite these words sounding strange to us, these words wouldn't have sounded as strange to the disciples. It's like listening in to a football huddle. I don't know if you've ever heard any of these types of, of languages that, I, I mean, it's just completely foreign to me. As they're calling plays in these offensive football plays, you hear stuff like Axe, Double Right, Spear, Larry, 735, H, Double Pop, Q, 2 on Go. I mean, I don't know what they're talking about. There's a whole language to the game of offensive football that the offense knows the meaning of, but nobody else does. Now, I'm not saying Jesus and his disciples had a system of code words and phrases that they would use. I'm simply making the point that your identity and your context and your experiences allow you to understand things that people with different identities and different contexts and different experiences maybe don't understand. And that's the situation we find ourselves in. So if we want to understand Jesus' reply to the disciples here, there are a few things we need to know. First, the, the Jewish tradition, eagles are often associated with God's saving activity and with being brought to him. For example, in Exodus 19.4, God says, You yourselves saw what I did to Egypt, how I bore you on the wings of eagles and brought you to myself. Isaiah even compares those who trust in God, believers, to eagles in Isaiah 40.31. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. And this idea of, of eagles in this motif, it didn't go away after the Old Testament books were done being written. In the intertestamental period, in these non-canonical books that we have, we also see this motif of associating eagles with redemption 
in books like First Enoch and the Testament of Moses. So this is a part of the Jewish mindset. So Jesus uses here in verse 37 the common imagery of eagles to answer the disciples' question, telling them that those who are taken when he comes back will be taken to himself. They'll be gathered together to his resurrected and glorified body. Jesus also answers what I think the question behind the question was. Which group do we belong to? Now, since his followers are those who have already left behind their former lives, their former occupations, their families, the comforts of the world, if they had any, in order to follow him, they can take comfort in knowing that their rabbi is not only their judge and their king, but he's also their savior. When he comes again, they will be gathered to him and they will be kept safe from destruction. They will experience a heavenly reunion with Jesus. So what have we seen in our passage tonight? Well, first we've saw, we've seen that Jesus is teaching that for now the kingdom of God is invisible. It operates uh, in ways we can't see, but one day it will be visible when Jesus returns. And that return will be unmistakable. It will bring judgment, and the final judgment, like the rest of God's judgments, will have two and only two possible results, destruction and salvation. And then in the final section of this passage, we saw that Jesus assured his disciples that as those who have forsaken their old lives, they will be gathered to him. They will experience salvation, not destruction. Now, if you'd let me cheat just a little bit, I'd like to make one final application of this passage, but to do that, I'm going to sneak into the next passage, because in Luke 18, 1 through 8, that's where we find Jesus' application of his teaching in chapter 17. This is the parable of the wicked judge, or the parable of the persistent widow. Those verses say, Then Jesus told them a parable to show them that they should always pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected people. There was also a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but later on he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor have regard for people, yet because this widow keeps on bothering me, I will give her justice. Or in the end she will wear me out by her unending pleas. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unrighteous judge says. Won't God give justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long to help them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So, there's no change of topic between chapter 17 and 18. In this parable, as Luke points out in verse 1, Jesus applies his teaching in chapter 17 and makes points about prayer and about patience. The story of the widow and the judge confirms what Paul says in his letters about praying continually, persevering in prayer, devoting ourselves to prayer. But we also have to be careful as we read this parable not to think of God like the wicked judge who only listens to our prayers because, you know, we annoy him to the point of responding. Instead, The point is that God is just. He's not like the wicked judge. He's our father. He's mindful of the sufferings we experience while waiting for his son to return and gather us to him. 
Jesus is assuring his disciples that even though their desire to be with him will be disappointed for a long time, and they'll have to suffer just like their Savior suffered, they shouldn't lose hope. They should continue to pray for God's justice. They should continue to pray that Jesus will return and bring that justice in his judgment. Brothers and sisters, because of the hope we have in Christ, we can persevere through the sufferings and the challenges of this life as we wait for the return of our King. Indeed, we will suffer like he suffered, but we'll also be glorified like he was glorified. And in the meantime, we should be praying. Praying reminds us of our dependence as well as our destination. The God we depend on for all things is the God who will come and rescue us. Jesus, the returning king, will not destroy us. Instead, like eagles, he'll gather us to himself. Our response will not be like those in Revelation 6, John tells us about. The wicked, from greatest to least, who cry out to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us, hide us from the face of the one who's seated on the throne, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come.